Today on Categorical Imperatives, we are going to be talking about rights, and particularly property rights, and why, in a certain sense, all rights are property rights. Hey, greetings, and welcome back once again to Categorical Imperatives. As always, I am your host, Lockheed and Liberal, and I do want to thank you all so much for being here with me today. Now, if you are new to the program, I especially want to welcome you. This is a podcast where we are going to be discussing legal theory and moral philosophy uh, as it relates to current events surrounding law, politics, and culture. Now, uh, real quick, actually, first I want to say... Uh, I uh, remember I have uh, later this week on Wednesday coming up, I'm going to be interviewing the great Scott Horton. I'm going to be talking to him mostly about his new book called Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terror. It's a fantastic book. He's a brilliant guy. It's going to be a really good time. Um, And I just wanted to remind you that if you uh, have any questions that you would like me to uh, put to Scott during the interview, uh, you can go join me over at Patreon and become a patron for as little as two bucks a month. And there are a lot of extra perks that you get over there, including a site where you can uh, post uh, questions for me to ask that I will be putting to him during that. Now, if you like the show and you appreciate uh, it's sort of the message that I'm trying to spread here and you want to put your financial faith behind the show, there's a number of ways you can do it. Patreon, PayPal, Venmo, uh, just whatever you can do. Uh, but anyways, uh, let's just get right to the topic for today. So, if you're anything like me, over the last year, every time that you have heard uh, rioters uh, or their leftist enablers claiming that massive property damage and obscene looting just really isn't a big deal because they're angry because someone lost their life. And that's more important than worrying about stuff and things, man. And it's just property. They're just destroying and stealing property. And if you're anything like me, every time you hear that, you know somewhere deep down inside, you die just a little bit. Somewhere on the inside, where the special place is inside. I've always known somewhere deep down inside me where, where the special place is inside forever. And if you feel that way, it's probably because you know what I know, and that is that all rights, even the right to life itself, is in a certain sense a property right. Now, if you have never considered that before, or your instinctual reaction is that that doesn't make sense, I, I know where you're coming from. Like I felt the same way the first time I heard that argument, uh, but just stay tuned. By the end of this video, I think you will have a clear understanding of how that can be. So I want to discuss what property rights are and their meaning and their purpose in law. But first, I want to uh, take a moment and describe what property rights are not, because I think both the left and to a certain degree, the right tend to see the classical liberal view that all rights are property rights as a kind of materialistic 
pedantic, even one-dimensional concept. So I want to uh, tackle that prejudice before we get to discussing what the uh, sort of classical liberal view of property rights is. So I, I think it wouldn't be going too far to say that uh, the left and even to a certain degree, the socially conservative right seem to believe that uh, what the libertarian view of property rights is, is essentially property rights no matter what. And essentially because libertarians will say people are self-owners respecting their self-ownership, this requires a kind of laissez-faire property rights regime. And even, admit, even if it, you know, immiserates the poor and leads to widespread poverty and misery, so be it. But the fact is, you would be hard-pressed to find any libertarian who actually supports such a position. Now, I am a strong and unapologetic advocate of property rights. But I believe, as I think not only most other libertarians believe, but I think the vast majority of people believe that a system of property rights is supposed to solve real human problems and make our lives better. Now, the reason most libertarians advocate free markets and property rights uh, in large part is because they believe, we believe, I believe that these things tend to make people's lives better. Now, as a matter of moral theory, it is a bad idea to defend an absolutist view of property rights regardless of consequences. Doing so is both intellectually weak argument and unlikely to persuade anyone who is not already strongly sympathetic with that kind of position. And the fact is, Defending absolutist property rights really leads to absurd conclusions and potentially indefensible hypotheticals. Now, uh, my, I guess sort of the one that comes to mind is one that I've heard uh, economist David Friedman use quite a lot, where he says, imagine uh, I live in an apartment on uh, the 15th floor of an apartment complex, and one night I am out on my balcony, and for some reason I trip and I fall off the balcony, but as I'm falling, I am able to grab the railing of the apartment right below me on the 14th floor. And the person who lives in that apartment on the 14th floor comes out, and he says to me, hey, that's, that's my railing, get off my property right now. Now, a belief in absolute property rights, it gives me no option but to let go of his balcony and fall to my death. That is an absurd conclusion. I don't think anyone would say that that makes sense. And if that doesn't make sense, obviously, absolute property rights is a fairly indefensible position. So I, I, I say all that to say this. I want to be clear. Please do not mistake my point that all rights are property rights as characteristic of a largely uh, unfair sort of libertarian caricature that what I am saying is property rights no matter what, because I am not. These are not the same thing. So let's first establish a working definition of property. 
uh, I would say that a good definition is that dominion which one man claims and exercises over the external things of the world in exclusion of every other individual. So, with that in mind, let's try and establish a set of first principles. Now, for me, the best place, really the only place personally that I start with this is uh, John Locke and Lockean Natural Law. This is a essentially a moral code of law that will apply to everyone. And uh, as Locke said, reason, which is the law, reason, which is that law, teaches all mankind who would but consult it that being all equal and independent, no one ought to harm another in his life, health, liberty, or possessions. And from this, Locke envisioned a a rule of law forming where he said, have a standing rule to live by, common to every one of that society and made by the legislative power erected in it. A liberty to follow my own will in all things where the rule prescribes not, and not to be subject to the inconstant, uncertain, unknown, or arbitrary will of another man. Now, Locke was established the uh, absolute necessity of private property as a matter of liberty when he said, Every man has a property in his own person. This nobody has any right to but himself. The labor of his body and the work of his hands, we may say, are properly his. He continues to say that that great and chief and therefore uh, that great and chief end therefore of men uniting into commonwealths and putting themselves under government is the preservation of their property now Locke believed that people legitimately turned common property into private property by mixing their labor with it and thereby improving it. Now, Marxists like to claim that this meant that Locke was embracing the labor theory of value, but he actually wasn't. What he was talking about here was establishing a basis of ownership, not a value of property. So these rights that we are talking about are natural in that we have them because of what we are, not because they were given to us by someone else. But just saying we have these rights isn't the same thing as giving an argument for why we have them. Now, for me to do this, I prefer to draw on Immanuel Kant's famous categorical imperatives, which would be no surprise since I named my show after them. Um, specifically, uh, in this case, I, I prefer Kant's second formulation, which says, Act so that you treat humanity, whether in your own person or in that of another, always as an end and never as a means only. So, humans are, by nature, rational beings possessing of dignity. I would say this dignity prevents us 
from being used by others, and hence we have a right against such use. I would say people may not be sacrificed or used for the achieving of others' ends without their consent, and that in this, individuals are inviolable. Now, only once we've established this, do we move on to the basic principle uh, of the libertarian value of self-ownership. Now, this says, uh, and you have to keep in mind all the first principles we've already established, that I own myself and thus have a right to do with myself as I please. Equally so, you own yourself, you have that same right. I don't own you, you don't own me. This gives each of us rights, not only to ourselves, but also as to the fruits of our labor, and that these are rights to be free from certain acts by other people, uh, and acts that essentially violate that self-ownership, uh, assault, theft, enslavement, things like this. Now, there is a good reason why uh, in Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, uh, which if, 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 as far as a novel that is uh, a dystopic, totalitarian uh, government, uh, it's really much more similar to, I think, our lived experience than sort of the default novel that most people tend to turn to, which is Orwell's 1984, which, don't get me wrong, brilliant and pathetic, though Orwell's book was, what separates them is that the Huxleyan view of totalitarianism doesn't come from the kind of abject fear of the consequences people face if they dare rebel against their slavery, as tends to typify the Orwellian dystopic world. Rather, Huxley uh, envisions a world where essentially technocratic social engineering is used in such a way as to make people love their slavery. Part of this uh, is, can be found in a common slogan that you will hear people reflexively repeat in Brave New World, and that is a belief that everyone belongs to everyone else. And this is why uh, the protagonist of the book resists all pressures and temptations to really give in to uh, everything that spawns the ability to believe in such a absurd principle, which includes uh, sort of a, a chemically induced pleasure uh, and the collective activity of social control that is meant to suppress human differences and that can cause you to lose your identity, and your agency. And in speaking out against this, uh, the protagonist, Bernard, uh, explains at one point, I would rather be myself, he said, myself and nasty, not someone else, however jolly. So the idea that even the most intangible human rights, such as freedom, identity, and agency, if these are things that can be lost 
or it can be taken from us. Does that not suggest that those are things that we claim a possession of and exercise control over, and that we must be able to do so in exclusion of every other individual? Essentially, if rights such as life, liberty, and a pursuit of happiness hold the same definition we give to property rights, doesn't that necessitate a recognition that those rights are rights that fall under the umbrella of rights that are an, that an individual can be said to have a property in. Now, consider even how we talk about someone who is a murder victim. We are likely to say that the murderer took the life of his victim. Again, we are seeing life itself as a thing which we possess and which can be taken and possessed by someone who did not have a claim to it. In moral philosophy, this typifies a matter known as distributive justice, which itself is a doctrine of establishing property rights. Now, with that general understanding of property rights and the relationship to the uh, protections that we find uh, in our organic laws and in natural law, I now want to move on to talking about the role of property rights uh, as they affect constitutional law specifically. All right, let's move on to talking about historical property rights. Now, progressives in the 20th century have, in large part, aimed at turning the American people away from their traditional attachment to property rights. A salient feature of their efforts has been the promotion of new opinions concerning the American founders and their appreciation for the importance of these rights. Within intellectual circles, progressives have tended to uh, tended both to acknowledge that the founders attached great significance to property rights and to denigrate them precisely for this attachment. The harsher critics, beginning with uh, Charles Beard, ascribed to the founders selfish motives in establishing a constitution that provided generous protections for private property. His claim was that the principal goal of such a constitution was to protect the wealthy elite against the Democratic majority. Now, Beard's assertion had been coupled with the claim made by other scholars that not only were the founders selfish, but they also understood all human beings to be primarily selfish, acquisitive creatures, and in his influential book, The American Political Tradition, Richard Hofstetter wrote, quote, They thought man was a creature of rapacious self interest, and yet they wanted him to be free. Free, in essence, to contend to, con to engage in an umpired strife, to use property to get property. They accept the mercantile image of life as an external battleground and assume the Hobbesian war of each against all. Milder liberal critics tended to focus their criticism not on the selfishness of the founders, but on the infeasibility of their system in modern America. Uh, in, in his book, The Promise of American Life, which was printed in 1909, Herbert Crowley, the founder of the New Republic, argued that the founders' individualism had been appropriate to an agrarian pioneering nation 
but was destructive to the modern industrial state, which needed vigorous direction from the national government. He criticized his contemporaries who failed to realize how thoroughly the Jeffersonian individualism must be abandoned for the benefit of the genuinely individual and social uh, consummation. Outside intellectual circles, however, the popular rhetoric of the progressives had not openly attacked the founders for their attachment to property rights. Rather, it had denied that they even had such an attachment. Franklin Roosevelt, eager to convince the public that the New Deal was not really so new, but actually somehow a fulfillment of old and tested American ideals, often argued publicly that the founders did not understand property rights to be as important as other individual rights. In one campaign speech, Roosevelt remarked that Jefferson had distinguished between the rights of personal competency, such as freedom of opinion, and secondarily, property rights. While he said the former were inviolable, the latter should be modified as times and circumstances required, which is egregious because that is not what he is saying his opinion is, that is what he was saying Jefferson's opinion was. And so, as the founders were themselves uh, uh, from the school of classical liberal political values and political, uh, or, or excuse me, classical liberal economics, I, I think it is safe to see how, uh, for uh, someone like myself, uh, a libertarian who is very much the inheritant of the classical liberal model of politics uh, and uh, economy, how it is that libertarians have uh, had their views degraded to such a base assertion of what we actually believe property rights are when we look at how progressives have been attacking the classical liberal view of property rights since the turn of the century. So with all this in mind, uh, I want to move on to a discussion of why it is that, indeed, property rights are paramount. So a reading of the important founding documents of our nation show clearly that the founders held property rights to be as important as other human rights. In fact, at times they insisted that the right to acquire and possess private property was in some ways the most important of individual rights. It's only one who ignores the history of the founding period who could possibly deny that the men of that era held the right to private property in high esteem. Indeed, it could be said that the central question of principle that animated the movements that led to independence and to the framing of the Constitution all concerned property rights. For if it was a threat to property rights in the form of taxation without representation that initiated the crisis that eventually led to the independence. Moreover, it was largely the undermining of property rights by state legislatures under the Articles of Confederation that had prompted the framing of a new national constitution that would protect the individual right to property against infringement by both national and state government power. 
and the state abuses of power during the 1780s included things such as the cancellation of private debts, either directly or indirectly, and especially through deliberately inflationary policies and the emission of worthless paper money in the form of legal tender. So, insofar as the founders made any distinction between property rights and other individual rights, they insisted that property rights were at least as important as the other personal rights. Now, in Federalist 54, James Madison stated tersely that government is instituted no less for the protection of the property than the persons of individuals. As Madison later elaborated, property rights are as important as personal rights because the two are intimately connected. The right to labor and acquire property is itself an important personal right and entitled to government protection and the property acquired through the exercise of this personal right is entitled by derivation to an equal protection, as he put it in his address to the Virginia Convention. Now, it is sufficiently obvious that persons and property are two great subjects on which governments are to act. And what the rights of persons and the rights of property are objects for the protection of which government is instituted. These rights cannot be separated. The personal right to acquire property, which is a natural right, gives to property, when acquired, a right to protection as a social and legal right. Now, if property rights were understood to be as important as other rights, how are we to account for the failure of the Declaration of Independence to mention uh, the word in its conspicuous substitution of the phrase pursuit of happiness. This, for those of you who don't know, was a uh, somewhat poetic alteration of what is the traditional Lockean formula of natural rights uh, from which Jefferson derived this, uh, which and from which uh, actually, in fact, George Mason also derived it in the Virginia Declaration of Rights. Uh, which Jefferson was equally, uh, uh, how would you say, uh, equally influenced by just as much as by Locke. Now, both Locke and then also Mason uh, in the Declaration of Rights referred to the fundamental natural rights as life, liberty, and property. So, when we think about Jefferson's substitution, does this not suggest that at least a subordination of property rights to other rights? Uh, indeed, some contemporary scholars have argued that the language of the Declaration manifests the Founders' intention to subordinate private property to happiness understood as public happiness. Yet, the founding documents make abundantly clear that their authors understood the right to property to be an integral part of the unalienable right to liberty. The authors of the Virginia Bill of Rights, the immediate antecedent to the Declaration, made this explicit. The first article of that charter states that all men have certain inherent rights, and this is the Virginia Declaration of Rights by George Mason I was just talking about, and this is a direct quote from a quote. Men 
have certain inherent rights, namely the enjoyment of life and liberty with the means of acquiring and possessing property and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety, end quote. Now, because Americans understood the right to property as part and parcel of a right to liberty, they viewed taxation without representation as a violation of their economic freedom. As an attack, uh, essentially, on the whole of their freedom. In fact, the Stamp Act Congress called to protect the first of those taxes, uh, declared that, quote, it is inseparably essential to the freedom of a people that no taxes should be imposed on them, but with their own consent. In a similar vein, Jefferson wrote, quote, still less, let it be proposed that our properties within our own territory shall be taxed or regulated by any power on earth but our own. The God who gave us life gave us liberty at the same time. The hand of force may destroy, but cannot disjoin them. In fact, American authors continually insisted that such taxation, however small the amount, on principle was tantamount to slavery. As one patriot, Silas Downer, affirmed, if the colonists yielded to the tax power of the British Parliament, this would place them in the lowest bottom of slavery. He continued, or if they can take away one penny from us against our wills, they can take all. If they have such power over our properties, they must have a proportionable power over our persons, and from hence it will follow that they can demand and take away our lives whensoever it shall be agreeable to their sovereign's will and pleasure. End quote. Now, to make a claim on the economic liberty of individuals uh, or their community is to make a claim on their entire freedom. In the end, no real distinction could rightfully be made between personal and economic liberty. Accordingly, the founders understood unjust taxation was not merely a financial or an economic issue, but an issue with implications for the whole of human liberty. The founders' attachment to economic freedom was in no way, in their understanding, opposed to the principle of equality. As Lincoln actually himself repeatedly emphasized, the equality proclaimed in the Declaration is not an equality in all respects. He said, quote, The authors of that notable instrument did not mean to say we were all equal in intellect, moral developments, or social capacity. They defined with tolerable distinctiveness in what respects they did consider all men created equal, equal in certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This they said, and this they meant. End quote. Moreover, 
Not only did the founders' understanding of equality not include all kinds of equality, such as uh, equality, for example, of economic condition, uh, which is championed by the progressive movement that so hates the founders, their conception of human equality necessarily excluded equality of condition. They believed that everyone had an equal right to exercise his individual abilities to acquire property, abilities that were by nature unequal, and that the equal right to employ unequal talent would necessarily lead to economic inequality. Now, as Alexander Hamilton stated at the Constitutional Convention, quote, It is certainly true that nothing like an equality of property existed, that an inequality would exist as long as liberty existed, and that it would unavoidably result from that very liberty itself, end quote. And this is something uh, that was summed up so beautifully by the uh, libertarian moral philosopher Robert Nozick in his great book, Anarchy, State, uh, and Utopia, when he said, liberty upset pattern. But back to the founders. Not only did the founders affirm that property rights were as important as other personal rights, at times, they insisted that property rights represented the most important of rights. In Federalist 10, James Madison wrote that the protection of, quote, the faculties of men from which the rights of property originate is the first object of government, end quote. Now, in what way did the founders understand the protection of the acquiring faculties to be the first function of government? Contrary to the assertions of authors such as Richard Hofstetter, it was not because they believed that acquiring property was the main or most important human activity. Men who willingly risked their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor for the sake of their country's freedom were obviously not the type who considered the accumulation of material goods to be the end of all human existence. All they believed was the first object of government is the protection of property rights. Now, this is a lesson that Madison and other founders learned from history, especially their own. On one hand, a foreign faction, that is the British Parliament, had begun its encroachment on colonial rights with an assertion of taxation power over the property of the colonists. On the other hand, after independence, Americans saw that a domestic faction, namely a passionate majority operating in state legislatures, could also threaten individual rights. And the first right to be undermined was a right to property. Through the pursuit of deliberate, uh, deliberately inflationary policies, the cancellation of private debts, and uh, the ability to void the obligation of contracts. Now, from such experience, Madison and other leaders learned that state, uh, statesmen should view property as the most important right because it is most, op most often the first option of a faction's hostility. So let's move on 
specifically to the Constitution's protection of property. Now, it is true that for the most part, our founders did not fully share the Lockean conception that I hold of property rights, uh, that of being a paradigmatic view of property rights as the source from which all other rights derive. Now, because of the relative vulnerability, property rights were afforded the most extensive guarantees in the Constitution. Among these specific limitations placed on congressional power in Article 1, most, either directly or indirectly, were designed to protect property rights. These included the restriction on direct taxes, the ban on export duties, the prohibition on preferential treatment of different ports, and the ban on taxation of interstate commerce. Now, these guarantees were later supplemented by the Fifth Amendment's Due Process Clause and the ban of the national government's taking power without just compensation, later made applicable to state governments by the 14th Amendment. Now, the original Constitution provided even more extensive guarantees for property rights against infringement by the state legislatures. These included the ban on state duties on imports and exports, as well as prohibitions on the coinage of money, the emission of bills of credit, the establishment of anything other than gold and silver as legal tender, and the passing of any law impairing the obligation of contracts. Moreover, the ban on state bills of attainder and ex post facto laws were designed to protect property rights more than personal rights. Finally, besides these specific guarantees, the framers of the Constitution established, with the use of such institutional devices as checks and balances, a government designed for stability a feature they promoted as most friendly to economic freedom. Now, the second reason that property rights were viewed as primary was that they served a practical guarantee for other rights. In effect, not only were property rights the most vulnerable, they were also the first line of defense for other rights. According to the founders, Property was not only a right in itself, but also a means of the preservation of other rights. Economic freedom was understood to serve the other personal freedoms in two ways. First, property meant practical power. And economically independent people were best able to maintain their political independence. Indeed, the ownership of property was of immense importance to the practical independence not only of the people as a whole, but also of the individual citizen. As Edward Morgan wrote in The Birth of the Republic, the, quote, widespread ownership of property is perhaps the most important single fact about America and of the revolutionary period. Standing on his own land with spade in hand and flintlock not far off, the American could look at his richest neighbor and laugh, end quote. Now, moreover, the personal economic independence afforded by the private property instilled in the citizenry was a spirit of personal independence, a virtue absolutely necessary to a self-governing people. Economic dependence, on the other hand, begets subservience 
and venality, suffocates the germ of virtue, and prepares fit tools for the designs of ambition. This was what Jefferson observed. Now, the virtue of the people that comes from personal independence is important because, as Jefferson noted, quote, it is the manners and spirit of a people which preserve a republic in vigor. A degeneracy in, a degeneracy in these is a canker which soon eats to the heart of its laws and constitution. It was because the founders understood property rights to be absolutely essential to Republican virtue that many of them favored restricting the suffrage to property holders. One will look in vain for any statement by the leaders of that generation claiming that those without property were inferior in their unalienable rights or their fundamental human dignity. What many, but not all, founders did believe, rightly or wrongly, was that a state in which the privilege of voting was restricted to property holders was the best means to assure a government that protected the basic rights of all rich and poor. At the Constitutional Convention, John Dickinson spoke for many present in arguing that freeholders uh, or landowners who constituted the vast majority of the people were the best guardian of liberty. Those without property were thought to be far too dependent on those with it to be able to exercise an independent vote. As Governor Morris argued, Give the votes to people who have no property, and they will sell them to the rich. Who will be able to buy them? The man who does not give his vote freely is not represented. It is the man who dictates the vote. Although, ultimately, the convention decided not to establish national requirements for suffrage and left it to the discretion of the state governments, the sentiments expressed during the convention debates showed why many states chose to retain property qualifications for voting, many leaders understood a property-holding citizenry to be the best guard of freedom. And this actually, just off the top of my head, reminds me of uh, a really uh, great quote that you often see going around on the internet, and it is often attributed to Alexei de Tocqueville, which he did not say. This doesn't even sound like anything he would say. Um, but it's it's really a, a great quote, nonetheless, even though it's not really by anyone of note, but uh, that essentially the idea that the uh, American Republic will endure until the day that Congress realizes they can bribe the people with their own money. Now, if that uh, doesn't speak perfectly to uh, many of our present problems, I don't, I don't know what does. But um, anyways, back to our discussion of uh, the founding. Eventually, anyways, um, whatever may be the merits of the extension of the suffrage only to property owners, this much is clear. The founders' opinion in this regard manifest clearly that they did not hold property rights in low esteem. As we have seen, 
They view the right to property to be not only as important as other human rights, but in some respects, as the most important human right. Economic freedom was a most important freedom, and its vulnerability to factional hostility required that it could be afforded extensive constitutional guarantees. Paradoxically, the most vulnerable of freedoms was also understood to be the best practical guarantee of the other freedoms. For the private ownership of property provided not only real power to the citizens, it also instilled in them that virtue of self-reliance and self-government essential to a politically self-governing people. Part of my reasoning for wanting to make this video was to add my own peculiar observation to this conversation. Now, most constitutional scholars, classical liberal philosophers, and revolutionary era scholars of American history will fully support the fact that all reasonable evidence points to a belief by the founders that property were considered as paramount and on an equal footing with individual liberty. So, both liberty and property rights were a product of natural law. But what about my assertion that all rights are property rights? Now, somewhat surprisingly, I have not yet found a scholar who will make the claim that this concept can be empirically tied to our founding documents. I haven't found this in just really sort of my long-term study of these topics that I have been immersed in uh, myself just over the years. Neither could I find it in uh, the copious amount of research that I did about this topic specifically as I was putting this video together. How about that? I looked something up. These books behind me don't just make the office look good. They're filled with useful legal tidbits just like that. So all we have to do is what we should have been doing all along. Namely, interpreting the founding documents that make up our organic laws as legal documents, since that is precisely what they are. Now, while it's a fair point to say that the Declaration of Independence is not binding law, the same way our Constitution is binding law, uh, it does make sense to approach these most fundamental documents pertaining to constitutional law with the same fundamental approach that our founders would have took when drafting them, and that is that one should always start with first principles. As for me, I can't think of a better way to approach that task than to turn to the great constitutional scholar and classical liberal philosopher, Randy Barnett. Now, Randy suggests that as far as for his principles uh, for these two documents go, uh, they should go something like this. The Constitution is not the law that governs us. It is the law that governs those who govern us. Likewise, the first principles of interpretation of the Declaration of Independence can be summed up as first come rights, then comes government. So, the Declaration of Independence is the charter of rights that we had before government. The government was created to protect those rights, and this creation of a government to protect those rights can essentially be converted into a constitution whose rules may 
uh, be used in combination to limit the power of government so that it performs those functions which it ought to perform, but doesn't engage in those excesses that those to whom we delegate power will inevitably seek to usurp. Now, if you are interested in the specifics of how our Constitution was created to do precisely that, it is something that I have discussed at length in a past video of mine titled American Constitutional Republicanism. Now, I would highly recommend checking this episode out if you are the least bit curious about that. And don't we just know you are? So, I will be putting a link to that video in a little card up in the corner of this video right about now. So with all that in mind, let's approach the words of the Declaration of Independence in light of its nature as a legal document. Specifically, the line that we have been focusing on in that document that states our conception of natural rights. That we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, while you can certainly find loose definitions of that term unalienable uh, to essentially mean a right that cannot be surrendered, sold, or transferred, uh, it also is a term that does have a very particular meaning within the English common law. Now, because this was a document drafted by and for governments in common law jurisdictions, I, I think it is reasonable to say that this document should be interpreted the way all legal documents are properly interpreted, and that is by applying to them the meaning that it would have been understood to have at the time that it was drafted, which means turning to the definition of this term from the time in the English common law. Now, this comes from the term alienability. This is a term in common law that is derived specifically from property law. And when we turn to uh, really the fundamental treatise on the common law, which is Blackstone's commentaries on the common law, it says the following about the concept of alienability. In property law, alienation is the voluntary act of an owner of some property to dispose of that property. While alienability, or being alienable, is the capacity for a piece of property or a property right to be sold or otherwise transferred from one party to another. Most property is alienable. Some objects are incapable of being regarded as alienable property and whose property rights are to be regarded as inalienable, such as people and body parts. Now, the significance of this should be immediately apparent. The only thing that can be called alienable or inalienable must, by definition, be property and anything endowed with an inalienable right must, by definition, be endowed with a property right. That means life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, no matter how 
they are individually defined or to what they are particularly applied must be defined as a kind of property and to them must be applied property right. In fact, this also explains why we can acknowledge that Thomas Jefferson replaced the concept of property rights with the pursuit of happiness without having to somehow say that he was subordinating or denigrating property as somehow less than a natural right. Because had he used that formulation, uh, he essentially would have been asserting that a right to property is a property right, and that is a tautology. Now, uh, at this point, uh, I want to uh, turn to uh, a, an essay written by James Madison uh, on property. Uh, and this is called On Property. Uh, it was released by him on March 28, 1792. Uh, and pretty much for the remainder of the show here, I'm, I'm going to be uh, reading this article for you guys verbatim. I think it's that good and uh, that brilliant and that important that it deserves to be heard whole uh, without my uh, interruptions or personal asides in it. So, uh, yeah, pretty much that's what is going to be the remainder of this episode, uh, of this episode from here on out. Madison starts the essay by saying, property. This term in its particular application means that dominion which one man claims and exercises over the external things of the world and exclusion of every other individual. In its larger and juster meaning, it embraces everything to which a man may attach a value and have a right, and which leaves to each to, and leaves to every one else the like advantage. In the former sense, a man's land or merchandise or money is called his property. In the latter sense, a man has a property in his opinion and the free communication of them. He has a property of peculiar value in his religious opinions and in the profession and practice dictated by them. He has a property very dear to him in the safety and liberty of his person. He has an equal property in the free use of his faculties and free choice of the objects on which to employ them. In a word, as a man is said to have a right to his property, he may be equally said to have a property in his rights. Where an excess of power prevails, property of no sort is duly respected. No man is safe in his opinion, his person, his faculties, or his possessions. Where there is an excess of liberty, the effect is the same. Though from an opposite cause, government is instituted to protect property of every sort, as well as that which lies in the various rights of individuals. 
as that which the term particularly expresses. This being the end of government, that alone is a just government, which impartially secures to every man whatever is his own. According to this standard of merit, the praise of affording a just securing to property should be sparingly bestowed on a government which, however scrupulously guarding of possessions of individuals, does not protect them in the enjoyment and communication of their opinions, in which they have an equal and, in the estimation of some, a more valuable property. More sparingly, should this praise be allowed to a government where a man's religious rights are violated by penalties or fettered by tests or taxed by a hierarchy, conscience is the most sacred of all property. Other property, depending in part on positive law, the exercise of that being a natural and unalienable right. To guard a man's house as his castle, to pay public and enforce private debts, with the most exact faith, can give no title to invade a man's conscience, which is more sacred than his castle, or to withhold it that uh, debt of protection for which the public faith is pledged by the very nature of original conditions of the social pact. That is not a just government, nor is property secure under it. Where the property which a man has in his personal safety and personal liberty is violated by arbitrary seizures of one class of citizens for the service of the rest, a magistrate issuing his warrants to a press gang would be in proper function in Turkey or Hindustan under appellations proverbial of the most complete despotism. That is not a just government, nor is property secure under it, where arbitrary restrictions, exemptions, and monopolies deny to part of its citizens that free use of their faculties and free choice of their occupation, which not only constitute their property in the general sense of the word, but are the means of acquiring property strictly so called. What must be the spirit of legislation where a manufacturer of linen cloth is forbidden to bury his own child in a linen shroud in order to favor his neighbor who manufactures woolen cloth, where the manufacturer and wearer of woolen cloth are again forbidden the economical use of buttons of that material in favor of the manufacture of buttons or other materials. A just security to property is not afforded by that government under which unequal taxes oppress one species of property and reward another species, where arbitrary taxes invade the domestic sanctuaries of the rich and excessive taxes grind the faces of the poor where the keenness and competition of want are deemed an insufficient spur to labor, and taxes are again applied by an unfeeling policy as another spur in violation of that sacred property which heaven, in decreeing man, 
to earn his bread by the sweat of his brow, kindly reserved to him in the small repose that could be spread from the supply of his necessities. If there be a government, then, which prides itself in maintaining the inviolability of property, which provides that none shall be taken directly even for public use without indemnification to the owner, and yet directly violates the property which an individual have in their opinions, their religion, their person, their faculties, nay, more, which indirectly violates their property in their actual possessions, in the labor that acquires their daily substance, and in the hallowed remnant of time which ought to relieve their fatigues and soothe their cares, the influence will have been anticipated that such a government is not a pattern for the United States. If the United States mean to obtain or deserve the full praise due to a wise and just government, they will equally respect the rights of property and the property in rights. They will rival the government that most sacredly guards the former and by repelling its examples in violating the latter, will make themselves a pattern to that and all other governments. That is going to do it for me today. I do hope that you enjoyed this episode of Categorical Imperatives. Uh, remember, I have uh, an interview coming up soon with Scott Horton. I will be talking to him about his fantastic new book, uh, Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terror. Head over to Patreon, become a patron if you want to have any questions uh, posted there for me to put to Scott during the interview. Or if you just generally appreciate uh, what I do here uh, with the show and the message that I am trying to spread and the discussion that I'm trying to have with all you good people out there. There's a number of ways you can support me besides Patreon. There's also PayPal, Venmo. If you don't have any money to put behind the show, that's fine too. Of course, uh, I just ask that you, uh, you know, smash the like button if you like the episode. Uh, leave me a comment. Let me know what you thought. Uh, this is uh, a, a a very uh, rich and uh, interesting topic. Uh, and I realize is one that a lot of people may not generally agree with me, at least from the start, or not understand where I was coming from on this. So I would love to hear uh, what you guys think. I, I mean, do you agree with me? Did you agree with me when you start? Uh, I, I, I mean, did I change your mind? Do you have any argument that you think may change my mind or prove me wrong? I would love to hear any thoughts like that from you guys at all. And then also... Uh, what I ask is, if nothing else, if you like the episode, uh, if you just can take a minute and think of uh, one other person you know who you think would appreciate this episode, would like the information, would find it interesting, uh, you know, whatever, would find it entertaining, and just think of one person like that uh, and just uh, send the episode to them and recommend it to them. And if you would uh, help me grow the channel that way. I would be very, very grateful for your help. Uh, and of course, if you hated the episode for today, uh, I just ask that you take a moment and you think of someone else you know who um, who you think would also hate the episode uh, and just take a moment 
uh, and send it to them, share it with them, tell them they should watch it. Um, because, frankly, I'm a masochist, and, well, your hate gets me off. So, anyways, uh, until next time, uh, this has been Categorical Imperative. Uh, I have been Lockie and Liberal talking about property rights. And, as always, Delenda Astrathago.